0: Father, we declare with the testimony of creation, with the proclamation of Scripture, with the testimony of the saints from all ages, that your name is hallowed and worthy of praise, that you are majestic, that you are manifest in all your glory in so many ways that we are overwhelmed at the revelation of our great God and the beauty of his creation that yet sings the joys and glories of the Lord from the ends of the earth to the farthest reaches of the universe. To salvation itself secured in Christ our Lord who became a man, was incarnate, lived and died, who bore the weight of our sin on Calvary, who lived a sinless life and whose righteousness is imputed to us upon the fulfillment of the great exchange where our sin is taken upon his shoulders and it takes the bruising and the beating and the death of Calvary And his righteousness is given to us whereby we are justified in the sight of a perfect and holy God. A God who will not allow one single trace of sin in his presence is now our friend because of Christ, the Lord, the God, and man who came and saved us. For these reasons we have sung this morning... We rejoice, Lord, with the testimony of your revelation that we personally know those who are believers in this room, the life-changing, life-saving, eternity-granting power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, as we look upon your holy word, I pray that the glories of your great name would be manifest to us in the pages of recorded scripture. As we return to the very beginning, the accounting of our own history, Lord, I pray that we would see clearly the truth as you have declared and proclaimed it, the truth that is forever established, Lord, immutable, and is powerful testimony to your nature and your character. Help us to see ourselves in light of it, to repent of any sin which would cling to us even now. Help us to walk in the footsteps that you have laid out, and by the power of the Spirit's indwelling, fulfill your will for us, walking in the knowledge of the truth. We pray that you would accomplish these things to equip your saints by the proclamation of your word this day, and that you would be further glorified in this earth by we, your people being established and rooted and grounded in our faith, shining forth as stars in the night sky to the glories of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all these things we pray, Lord, that you would do them, that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege we have this morning to open up the Holy Scriptures and to consider the Holy Word of God. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Genesis 3 this morning? Genesis 3. Verses 8-15 through will be our primary text today in our Genesis Sermon series. We've been studying the architecture of reality, if you will. The very foundational principles for this world and for life and godliness and the relationship between the sovereign creator of heaven and earth and what he has made. Not only his world, but we, his creatures. All of these fundamental principles, the architecture of reality, if you will, is laid out in the book of Genesis. It takes careful study and close scrutiny to draw out everything there contained, and I'm sure we'll only touch the surface even as we try our best to do so moving through the book. This is partly because what we see in the book of Genesis is in seed form, minute but powerful, not fully developed in its revelation sense as it will be later on through the Scripture, but nevertheless containing all of the power and energy that we see developed through the Scripture with further revelation down the road. And so as we've studied the first couple of chapters and move into the third, we see passages, cross-references of Scripture, elucidating, expounding, showing more of the glorious, blooming life that the seeds of Genesis contain. So that's our approach today. The title of this morning's message is The Sound of the Lord God or you could say, sound of the Lord God. This is a phrase that comes from Genesis 3. Upon the fall of man into sin, there is a reckoning that takes place. And in verse 8, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, our parents, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the seriousness of sin and to proclaim the sovereignty of God. We see both in our passage today, the seriousness of sin and the sovereignty of God. Would you stand with me once again for the reading of God's word? And listen, as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today, again, I am reading for you Genesis 3, 8 through 15. Here is the holy scripture of our Lord. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly, you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last time we were in Genesis 3, we talked about four states of man. 4 conditions in the history of mankind that we find ourselves in, depending who we are and when we are born and so forth, there was only two that enjoyed the very first state. That was the state of innocence. Man, and uh, as Adam and Eve, were the only ones who ever knew this state of innocence. They fell from this state into a state of guilt, you could say, or sinfulness. And thus, entering into the bloodstream, the spiritual bloodstream of all of mankind, was original sin, and as David says, "In sin my mother conceived me, so we can say the same. Life is different following Adam and Eve in drastic, dramatic, horrific, and tragic ways. We are born in a state of guilt and sin. There is a third state. That third state is man's salvation. It is a fundamental change of his nature, his character, and his being. That's why the Bible describes salvation as a calling forth from the dead unto new life a resurrection indeed. It's also why the Bible describes this third state as an event wherein we are born again, a new person, a new creation in Christ Jesus, a regeneration, a return to what God had ordered in the first place and more. And then the fourth state of man, I wonder if anyone remembers. Children, do you remember the fourth state? What would it be? We have innocence, we have guilt, we have salvation. And what's the fourth one? Anyone know? Life. That's good. We'll call it eternal life. How about that? The fourth state of man is glory in heaven one day. And in this fourth state, it is the ultimate of salvation. It is the place wherein there is no tear to be shed anymore, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more shred of sin plagues the existence of man. But this fourth state, which is only possible in and through the saving work of Jesus Christ, is experienced in eternal life, in glory, in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. This is a little bit of the broader context that Genesis, in which Genesis is situated. Nevertheless, we turn to the, uh, pass- our passage today and we find a sound echoing forth from the garden, the sound of the Lord God. The advent of the fall of man from a state of innocence to a state of guilt, is followed immediately by a reckoning. What is a reckoning? It's a call to account. You must now answer for what you have done. That reckoning comes swiftly, and it comes boldly. It comes with a sense of terror that accompanies its call, and the hearts of Adam and Eve begin to tremble. They run and hide from God, calling from the garden, answer me, what have you done? Man must answer to his creator for his stewardship of the realm. Has he been faithful to the charge that God has given him to keep and to tend the garden? No, he has not. He must now answer for failing in that regard, not guarding the garden from the enemies, but instead inviting them in and listening to the wiles of the devil, incarnating his form, if you will, in a serpent and convincing him That there's a better way to the knowledge of good and evil. Disobedience. Not obedience unto life, but disobedience unto self-actualization. You can be like God. You can be a being on the same plane, enjoying the same abilities and the same knowledge of God himself. If you just follow my way, the twisted uh, voice of the enemy spoke into man and woman's ear. And so they listened and failed in their duty to steward the realm. Man and wife dread this occasion. They're reckoning now they must account for their sin, and they frantically seek refuge apart from the presence of God. They run from the presence of God. Ponder that statement for a moment and think of the horror. What was the most glorious blessing you could possibly imagine? The most amazing privilege that anyone could ever conceive, indeed, so glorious, in fact, that mind cannot, our simple, finite minds cannot comprehend what it would be like to be in the uninterrupted presence of God without a shred of sorrow, sin, or the effects of the fall ever to plague our environment. Now to think of that presence, that same reality of being close to God as a fearful eventuality, as a, frightening, uh, as a frightening thing indeed, what a drastic turn we see. So thus, Adam and Eve seek refuge apart from the presence of God, and they quickly discover there is no such thing. Mankind seeks frantically for refuge apart from the presence of God today and proves himself a fool and proves himself a reprobate over and over and over with as many generations of fools who seek refuge apart from the presence of God. There is none to be found. So what is man to do? He cannot stand in the presence of God and he cannot escape the day of the Lord. He cannot stand in the presence of God and he cannot escape the day of reckoning, the day of judgment. What must he do? what can he do? This catch 22 defines the self-justifying and the obfuscating impulses, the pagan religions, the things that we uh, entertain all of the deceitful mechanisms and distractions that life and and Satan still whispers into man's ear, this catch-22, it motivates all of these pitiful attempts, pitiful attempts to escape the reality that we cannot stand in the presence of God without a fundamental change, and we cannot escape the final day of judgment ever since that fateful day of disobedience in Eden. The pitiful attempts and the heat of the moment are evident not just with Adam and Eve, but even with mankind today, to escape the attention of the holy God. They are futile in the extreme. As futile as Adam and Eve trying to run and hide from a sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God, so are attempts to justify ourselves by some other means than the only way of salvation. However, this absurd reality does not prevent or suppress man's attempts to hide from God even today. In our strong delusion, we are hell-bent, apart from our eyes and ears and minds being awakened to the reality of the only way, truth, and life, apart from this, in strong delusion, we are hell-bent on denying and evading the inevitable, inescapable consequences of sin. What are the wages of sin? Does anyone know? The wages of sin are death. death. Is there any escape from the wages of sin apart from Jesus Christ? No, No. the wages of sin are death. In our strong delusion, we deny this, but our vain attempts only add to the record of the consequences of sin through history as one by one, the vain attempts of man are proven foolish and he dies in his trespasses and sins only to enter from a vain attempt to self-justify himself into eternal conscience, torment, which is the just recompense for what he deserves. And so we have this problem, this intractable problem, plaguing mankind up through to today. And the record of debt that stands against us, there's no way to be rid of it on our own strength. From the very beginning, it is made clear that the only way this record of debt can be canceled According to Colossians 2, 13 and 15, and Genesis 3 is for it to be nailed to the cross. And this hope, brothers and sisters, is granted to us all the way from Genesis 3:15, and it would live on through the offspring of the woman. That is the hope in our passage today. And in fact, the record of Genesis chronicles the history of the offspring of the woman and the enmity between that offspring and the offspring of Satan, the serpent. And also the hope that yet lay on the horizon, prophetically unveiled of a Messiah who would come and crush his head. So this is a picture of, or this is a uh, introduction for Genesis 3, 8 through 15. Let me give you a heading for two main points today. The heading is the immediate aftermath of the fall. We are reading in our text today the immediate aftermath. What happens next after Adam and Eve fall into sin? This immediate aftermath features Uh, Two things, may I suggest. Number one, man under sin. We see what it looks like for man to be under sin, a slave to sin, to to see him shackled by his own uh, decision and breaking of the covenant and the consequences of what that means for him. And secondly, we see glorious hope. We see God over sin. We see in spite of this great tragic event that God is yet sovereign and God yet is Lord even over sin, even over man, even over salvation. Man under sin, God over sin. Very simple outline today. Man under sin, 3 subpoints, Condition, compensation, and condemnation. Let's look at man's condition under sin. Turn with me again to our text in Genesis 3, and let's rewind to perhaps verse 6. This is the event itself. So when the woman saw Phrases are not very long. This sentence structure doesn't take a lot of page, pages in the account, but the drastic situation and the dramatic fall of Adam and Eve from the state of innocence to the state of fallenness or sin or guilt cannot be overstated. The immediate aftermath features, in fact, man under sin and an awareness of his changed condition. Man had this glorious... Um, He had this glorious inoculation from or distance from or preservation of his innocence and holiness before the Lord, before he fell. Man had not experienced in any of his past, his transgressions, his actions, the reality of evil or sin, breaking God's law. But now something has changed. Upon the disobedience of Adam and Eve, partaking of the forbidden fruit, Suddenly, verse 7, their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The sudden onset of spiritual death is instantly and powerfully evident to man. There are uh, literal and figurative ways that Genesis speaks to us about the reality of this situation. And one of the figurative ways that the Bible speaks of the condition of man in sin is with the imagery of nakedness. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah 13 to give ourselves more evidence of this fact. We find in the prophetic writings that often the idea of nakedness is referred to by the prophets to illustrate the condition of man. The condition of man is associated with nakedness in many ways. It's a fall from dignity. It's an absolute vulnerability. It's an ashamedness. It's an embarrassment. It is a spectacle it is a horrific sight indeed. Notice this language in Jeremiah thirteen twenty-two, a prophecy against the wayward people. If you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. In other words, do you see the connection? The greatness of the iniquity of the people, the increase of their sin, this great depravity that's manifest in their horrific lifestyle and the wickedness that has been increasing in the nation, there are consequences. And one of the consequences is the Lord will make them aware and, and, and suffer the consequence of their condition. Your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. In other words, you are made naked and a spectacle and paraded, and you are reduced uh, to this humiliating uh, a form, this laughable, Uh, shadow of your once great self to your neighbors. Verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard, his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? In other words, this condition is through and through. These people sin because it is in their nature to do so. Verse 24, I will scatter you like chaff, driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. Do you see? The condition of mankind remains under the curse of Eden all the way through this, you know, thousands of years later, the people are still listening to the serpent as it were. They have forgotten the Lord. They have trusted in lies. They have turned from the proclamation of His truth and covenant. They have turned from the Scriptures to listening to the evil one. And in so doing, they will reap the consequences of their sin. Verse 26. I myself, the Lord speaking in the first person, I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. I have seen your abominations, your adulteries, and your neighings, your lewd whorings on the fields, on the hills, in the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem, how long will it be before you are made clean? The people attempt to cover themselves, to carve out an existence for themselves, to clothe themselves with their idea of respectability. But just like the fig leaves that were pitifully sewn together by Adam and Eve in the beginning, that will not be a sufficient covering to restore unto them their standing and their dignity and their honorability and the sight of others or before God. The fig leaves of their own vain efforts to render themselves presentable will be torn off as it were, and their shame will be paraded to their own judgment. This is what it means to be naked and to be aware of your nakedness. It is the fact that your sinfulness is exposed and you're absolutely vulnerable and that your life is and future will now be overrun by the horror of consequences. It's like living under the knife of a guillotine, and there is a crank on the side slowly turning, and you know at any moment it could fall. It's like living in the wake or on a fault line, never knowing when that earthquake will come and swallow you to your doom. It's like living on the battlefield with bullets whistling over your head, And it's just by the skin of your teeth you survive, not knowing if the next one will pierce your temple. It's a feeling of being exposed, vulnerable, and absolutely unprotected, the armor gone, the respectability gone, uh, open and uh, fair game to wickedness and evil and the consequences of your own failure before the Lord. This is our condition. It's a condition that could be summarized perhaps by two words, shameful guilt. The shameful guilt of man. This is man under sin. His condition is one where the dignity uh, of the uh, indignity of nakedness is judgment uh, for his own transgression of the Lord, his own uh, of the Lord's law, his own iniquity. Now, uh, Adam, as we have seen, tries to compensate for this. And this will be our next point. But notice, a part and parcel to his self-justifying attempts, are trivializing his own sin. When the Lord asks him a question, such as, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? It's prefaced by the following, verse 9. The Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And notice Adam's answer. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and was afraid, because I was naked. And I hid myself. Notice even in this answer, Adam seems more concerned about the effects of his sin, the fact that he feels vulnerable and shamed and, uh, and guilty, than he does the sin itself. Uh, what Adam should have answered in the wake of God's word coming to him is I have sinned. I, play, I throw myself upon your mercy. Is there any possible way for you to save me? It is my fault. It is none other. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. These are the words of repentance from Psalm 51. We sang a portion of that Psalm today. This was the heart of contrition that David manifests. But notice it is not the heart of Adam at this time. Instead of this, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. In other words, he laments the consequences of his sin. But as of yet, he does not lament the fact that he has transgressed a holy God. He does not own up to the fact that it is his fault and his alone that he has sinned and done evil in the sight of the Lord of glory. And this is the condition of man. In his shameful guilt, he is left open and exposed, vulnerable to the consequences of his falling short of the glory of the Lord. And he frantically tries to uh, trivialize, in his frantic attempts to deal with this, he often trivializes his sin, forgetting that the real horror is transgressing God's law and for this, he is accountable, and to this, he must repent. Secondly, under man under sin, not only do we see his condition uh, evident and featured in the text, but we also see man's attempts to compensate for his sin. Going back to the fig leaf event in verse 7, then the eyes of both were open, both Adam and Eve, that is, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, next week, Lord willing, we'll cover another portion of the text further on in Genesis 3. And this portion will be a in contrast to what we've just uh, read. And notice um, that the Lord God, behold, uh, in, in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was... a the mother of all the living. In verse twenty-one, and the Lord God made for Adam and for Eve garments of skins and clothed them. This is a sovereign covering that we see pictured in Genesis three twenty-one. But there was a compensation, a self-righteous attempt, or a, uh, an attempt out of a desire to compensate for sin, that is contrasted to this divine provision for clothing that Adam and Eve demonstrate. In Genesis 3-7, instead of asking the Lord to clothe them and so that they might not be open and exposed and shamefully guilty before Him, they attempt to do it themselves. They sew fig leaves together and make for themselves loincloths. And this is a vain attempt to compensate for their shameful guilt. Uh, let me submit to you that here we have the roots of pagan religion. Perhaps you could even say it this way. The very first pagan religion that man ever invented is found in Genesis 3-7. Yes, indeed, man went to nature itself, and in his own attempt, he tried to come up with a way to cover the effects of his sin. He tried in his futility and his own ingenuity and his vain ambitions and of his own accord and works to justify himself in light of his very present wickedness and vulnerability. And it was futile indeed, as futile as fig leaves can protect you from stray bullets. Paganism, false religion, vain attempts to justify yourself, seeking hope, help, salvation in any other way outside of what God has provided alone in Jesus Christ is uh, like seeking to protect yourself in the line of fire with fig leaves for armor. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths." Do we see this attempt today? Mankind, in our hubris, in our uh, self-important uh, pride and arrogance, we scoff and we sneer at these pagan stories and our naturalistic frame of mind in our rebellion against the holy God and our denial of the account of our very history which is the only sufficient explanation for the condition of man even in our nation today. And in light, as against this truth, we hear people disregarding the Old Testament Scriptures as mere myth, fanciful ideas, the imaginations of Bronze Age goat herders that come up with an explanation for certain things, but it's obviously untrue, not so fast, a pagan person. The vain attempts today to sow fig leaves together to justify our sin are present even now. We don't treat sin as a root and condition problem in the soul of man, but we look for ways to justify ourselves by explaining it away through alternate means. It's the harshness of our environment, don't you know, why terrorists commit the atrocities that they do? If they had more economic opportunities, uh, you would find perfect peace existing on earth. Oh yes, you think that peace can come void of the prince of peace? How many times have we tried that and how many times has it failed? And every time we try, it will fail again because there is no peace, no reconciliation, no hope for mankind, no righteousness available, ultimately apart from the word of the Lord. And everything else is like sewing fig leaves together as an attempt to justify ourselves. We seek other alternate explanations for why men are the way they are. We seek this in, uh, in, and we seek hope and help through political activism, through humanistic philanthropy, through historical uh, revisionism, through naturalism, naturalism and scientific so-called accounts of our origins and through technological utopianism. A lot of fancy words, but let's consider that last one. Man thinks that he'll, he will be able to correct his condition by inventing new machines, or by reorganizing himself by leveraging technology for a hopeful future. What are these things? These are pagan religions. These are fig leaves. These are promises for hope, help, salvation, and peace that will never come to pass, but will only add to our, uh, de- to our day of reckoning more reasons for the Lord to render us worthy of judgment, death, and hell. The wages of sin are death, as the children recited correctly before earlier in this service. But uh, but but, uh, how horrific is it that we add to the wages of our sin more reasons for God to judge us by trying to compensate for that sin by alternate means? Pagan religion seeks to do this. Pagan thinking seeks to do this. Another way that man sought to compensate for his sin is by shifting blame. This is evident in the text as well. The man says in verse 12, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. This upon the question, why have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? You guys think that this is a good excuse? The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Uh, Children, is that a good excuse for sin? Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Essentially, the devil made me do it. Is this a good excuse for sin? No. The Lord said to the serpent, and then he brings judgment against him. Does the Lord exclude, or does he, uh, does he restrict his judgment only to the serpent? No. As we will see as we read on through the text, the woman is judged, the man is judged, and the serpent are judged, all for their rebellion against the Lord of glory. Now, deferring our blame, blaming others, seeking false scapegoats from our guilt is no way to deal with sin. It compounds our guilt before the Lord, but nevertheless, it is our impulse to do so until the Holy Spirit shines the light of truth upon our soul. And again, we cry out with David, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It is my sins and transgressions that nailed Jesus Christ to the tree. It is not the wickedness of culture for which Christ died first and foremost, as we come to terms individually with our sin. Is not for redemption of the whole world, first and foremost, although the whole world will be redeemed by the power of Christ's work on Calvary, but first and foremost, redemption is realized in the heart of individual sinners who come to terms with their own transgression against the Lord and do not use any occasion, however subtle or blatant, to shift the blame onto something else. There is no excuse for sin. We ought not to compensate, but instead like the publican and the sinner, in the open marketplace, if, it, if necessary, confess, Lord, I am worthy of your judgment. Save me, spare me, I pray. <clears throat> Next to him stands the Pharisee, who thinks that he has compensated for his sin by a whitewashed exterior. Jesus condemned the Pharisees in stronger language than all the others. And what did he say? You're whitewashed on the outside, but inside you are full of... Anyone know? Sin, dead man's bones. Yes, sin is a correct answer. Pictured in this imagery, dead man's bones. And so, man under sin is aware of his condition immediately, shameful guilt. He seeks to trivialize his sin. He seeks to compensate for his condition by inventing false religions and deferring responsibility. But ultimately, this only amplifies His deserving condemnation. The third point, man under sin, condition, compensation. Thirdly, condemnation. First of all, this condemnation shows up in self-estrangement, if you will. Man runs from the presence of the Lord. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The first hint that man is condemned in his sin and knows that he's condemned in his sin is that at the thought at the revelation of the presence of God, he is struck with fear and terror and he runs away. He hides himself or attempts to in the pre- from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The title of this morning's message is The Sound of the Lord God. What do you suppose the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in, the, in our translation ESV, the cool of the day, sounded like to Adam and Eve? What do you suppose it sounded like? Like death? Like death? That's exactly right. Thank you, Cy. Yes, it sounded exactly like imminent doom, like death was on the horizon. Now, I grew up with uh, interpretations of this text more often than not saying that these were the gentle footsteps of the Lord who, after all, walks through the garden alone with me while the dew is still on the roses, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. You know, these tender love ballads of our just gentle stroll with Jesus through the garden. Usually, I I have, you know, through the course of my Christian life, most often I have read this verse this way. In the cool of the day, the Lord's walking in the garden is this tender cooing and drawing and this sense of, oh, please, you know, this welcome, yet man uh, resists even this loving uh, presence of the Lord, runs away and hides himself in his sin. But a little closer look at the original text, and with the help of some commentaries, I think Silas is correct. It did sound like death was on the horizon. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. I believe we'll find here a parallel text. What, do, what is the sound of the Lord God if you are in sin? What may have sounded like a gentle stroll or an amazing sound, a glorious uh, exchange of communication, suddenly sounds entirely different in the presence of a holy God when you find yourself falling short of His glory. Revelation 6, 12-14, when He opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, Calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Now the great day of God's wrath is the day of the Lord. It's the day of reckoning. It's the day when the voice of the Lord and the sound of the Lord calls man to account for his sin. And if man does not have his sin covered by the blood of Jesus, what is the sound of the Lord? The sound is akin to stars falling from the sky, to the environment and even the trees that Adam and Eve were trying to hide behind being shaken by a gale. It is the feeling of being under, on top of ground, shaking, unstable, beneath your feet, a great earthquake that could follow you up in a moment. And it doesn't matter who you are, if you're a king, a great one, a general, a rich, powerful, or if you're a slave, free, you seek to hide yourselves from the presence of the Lord God. Because His presence and holiness, when man is lost in his sin, is the worst, most terrible, most horrific uh, sign of His imminent doom that you can possibly imagine. This was true on Mount Sinai. Do you remember on Mount Sinai? There was one man... Who is sufficiently covered, if you will, to go up to Mount Sinai and endure the presence of the Lord, namely Moses. But for those who are on the periphery, where did they find refuge? As far and away from that mountain as, pos- as is possible. Because it shook with the holy presence of God, and the message was this. Without a sufficient sacrifice to cover you, there is no entry into the presence of God without immediately crushing absolute imminent doom the word in hebrew is ruach and it means wind more literally genesis 3:8 can be translated as follows and they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the wind of the day this word ruach can mean the angry breath of the nostrils the uh the uh, uh, a storm of of anger and uh a blast of the nostrils, a, a, a sense of the anger of the Lord wrapped up into an event of a powerful natural force related to powerful natural forces like the sheer terror of a storm at sea, where a single wave could smash a boat in half. And this is the feeling that I think is a better understanding of what Adam and Eve were faced with when the presence of the Lord revealed himself in holiness in the garden. They had good reason to run and hide, because without a sufficient covering, they were surely as good as dead. Second major point this morning, immediate aftermath of the fall. Not only does it feature man under sin, but also God over sin. And so we continue to read in our text. First of all, there is a confrontation. Back to our text today. The Lord called to the man and said to him, "'Where are you?' Note the questions that the Lord brings up. Number one, where are you? He said, furthermore, in verse 11, "'Who told you that you were naked?' Third question, "'Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat?' And then the fourth, to the woman, or specifically, "'What is this that you have done?' Did God know where Adam and Eve were? Was He genuinely ignorant as to their whereabouts?' Of course, he knew where they were. This is evident even in their text that the purpose for the Lord's question was not to find them per se, but instead to call them to account for their sin. This was a moment of reckoning. Where are you? And immediately Adam answers, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. If Adam thought God didn't know where he was and he had sufficiently hid himself, would he have answered? No. This question of where are you is not the Lord looking for Adam, it's the Lord calling Adam to account for his sin. And more than this, the language of where are you indicates a distance between God and man. And this is a horrific proclamation indeed. So long as there is a chasm between God and man, man is under condemnation for his sin, and the confrontation with the presence of God spells doom for him. Who can bridge this chasm? How can man stand in the presence of God once again? Hebrews 4 answers this question. Let me read these words for you. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Notice verse 16. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Who can bridge the distance between the sinner and the holy God? It's Jesus Christ, the only high priest. He is the one who is tempted as we were, but passed the test, survived the probation. He is the one in whom we have safe passage to the presence of the Lord in Jesus Christ, our high priest, we can go boldly before the throne of grace, and we can draw near without terror striking our hearts. We need not, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and as our high priest, hide among the trees, as it were. But indeed, we can go boldly through the curtain, that is through Jesus' torn flesh, into the place of God's sweet communion once again with man. So this confrontation sets up the situation, but also prepares the way for us to understand what reconciliation will look like. Yes, man was estranged from the presence of God, but there would be a bridge built in Christ to cross that great chasm. Second question, who told you? Were you seeking knowledge from other gods? Of course, the answer is yes. Jesus went through his own temptation parallel to that of Adam May I suggest, Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answers answers the devil's temptation and says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Did Adam and Eve live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? No, they chose to live by the word that came from the mouth of the serpent. And in so doing, they sinned, they fell, and now they were confronted. And as the Lord asks them these questions, it's an invitation to confess, to repent. The Lord is asking them questions in part in His grace, questions unto confession. If they answer correctly, they will confess their sin. I believe Adam and Eve did eventually confess their sins before the Lord. I I believe we do see evidence of their faith, and we'll study this more next week as the record continues. And no doubt, these questions rang in their consciousness for the rest of their lives. Where are you? Who told you? Have you not eaten or have you eaten of the tree which I told you not to? What have you done? Answers to those questions, truthful answers to those questions would lead to the first step of repentance, admitting that you are a sinner, examining your own heart And answering, Lord, it is my fault. I have fallen short. I have broken your law. I throw myself upon your mercy and grace for redemption. Now God over sin, God's sovereignty over sin is illustrated in his power to confront. Secondly, in his power to to recompense or to repay or to bring punishment. We see this in verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This would be the recompense, the payment, the condemnation, the punishment for the serpent's transgression, rebellion against the Lord. Now, if you listen to commentary, you should do so uh, these days on texts like this, you should do so with great discernment. Why? Because modern man, in his scientific naturalism, cannot comprehend the idea that the devil or serpent or snake or now I have no legs, and I can't really make sense of this, must just all be a fanciful story. No. Time and again, through the course of the scriptures, God uses elements of nature to reveal aspects of himself. Who remembers the rainbow? Who saw the rainbow as a sign? Who was the first person to see the rainbow as a sign? Noah, that's correct. And the rainbow is created scientifically by light passing through, you know, water particles in the air and then the prism displaying all these colors. Is that correct, Judah? Like Like a prism. That's correct. Now, that's the scientific explanation for a rainbow. But God has ordered something in creation to point to something else. Every time Noah looked at the rainbow, he wasn't commanded to remember that this is light passing through the prism of water crystals, however true that was. He was told to remember the promise, the covenant that God made with man to never flood the earth again. The sun rises and sets each day and the scripture tells us that that is a visible, tangible reminder, God in his grace giving us something we can mark his faithfulness by. Another example in nature, something revealed to us by by an element of creation. And so it is with the snake, Uh, a wicked incarnation, if you will, a spiritual being made flesh, so Satan incarnate in this snake comes, or this serpent. And then the condemnation of this serpent, such that he will live on, the, uh, on his belly, crawl and eat dust, a picture of humility, forever exists in nature. So when we look at a snake, we are reminded that this just isn't a reptile from some genus, some species, and this is the you know, explanation of where it fits into our taxonomical you know, categories in our science reference book or whatever. No, there's more than that. Every time we see a snake, just like the rainbow, just like the sun rising and setting, we are to be reminded of the subtlety and the subjugation of evil. Evil is crafty, it's subtle, you seldom see it, it sneaks up like a snake. Yet just like a snake, uh, evil is laid low before the foot of our Lord and Savior and one day will be destroyed. And this is our last point this morning, an example a feature of God over sin. Not only does God confront, not only does He bring judgment, but He also promises atonement. And this is Genesis 3.15, our closing verse this morning. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, Last week we were in Psalm 85. And we followed the pronouns. They begin with you six times, then they follow us six times, and then me. The last pronoun in Psalm 85 says righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the messianic future tense, if you will. Suddenly, an individual, a man in the future, is singled out as the last cord of hope in Psalm 85. There is one to come. And righteousness will go before him, and in him you will have hope, and and you will have a promise of salvation. There is a similar message in Genesis 3.15, and a similar pronoun. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Who knows who this is? Who will bruise the serpent's head? That's correct. Next, Last question, children, this morning. How did Satan bruise Jesus heal? How did Satan bruise Jesus heal? By, by on the cross. That's correct. Persecution and death on the cross. And this is the message of Genesis 3:15 that one day evil will be tread upon by the sovereign foot of God who will become a man as seed and offspring of the woman, he will bruise the serpent's head. That is, a crushing mortal blow will be struck upon evil upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And the heel, consequently, of Christ will be bruised in His death. But in this act, atonement, hope, and salvation will be found. We don't have time to turn there today, but would you study in your own time sometime this week? Revelation 12, 5 through 12. Because here we see the activity of Satan referenced once again And we see the sovereignty of Christ's foot crushing him once and for all, which was accomplished now and forever through his work on Calvary. In summary, the activity of Satan we behold yet today, brothers and sisters, is merely the writhing and thrashing of the dying serpent, whose death blow was dealt on Calvary and will be manifest ultimately in due course as he is trod underfoot, by by Christ on Calvary, and by the great victory parade of the elect, all who share uh, the joy and hope of salvation in Jesus, celebrating the exploits of the Lamb. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I am here to tell you this morning, this is the only way that you will escape the condemnation that you deserve for your sin. But if you know Jesus Christ, if He is your Lord and Savior today, there is great hope for you, and there is great triumph for you, you will join with Jesus in his victory parade, trotting evil under your feet, as it will. The people of God will soon crush Satan under their feet because they are in Christ, and Christ has destroyed Satan's head on Calvary. This is hope eternal. This is a picture of God's sovereignty over sin. Man is under sin in his condition. He tries to compensate. Ultimately, he is condemned. However, There is a sovereign God who rules over sin. He confronts us with the gospel. If we repent, the recompense is taken on the shoulders, on the back, on the uh, pierced side, and on the bruises, and on the blood that flowed from Jesus' hands and feet. The recompense is taken upon him, and atonement is secured for us. Praise his holy name. If this happens for you, now the sound of the Lord God as no longer this earthquake spelling your imminent doom, but it is the sound of a friend calling to a friend, turn your face towards me. My countenance is lifted upon you. Let us enjoy perfect communion forevermore. Let us close in prayer. O Lord, we are thankful for your grace and mercy that has extended to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have overcome the serpent, the evil one, that you have trod him underfoot in the name and through the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we look back across the landscape of Scripture, I pray, Lord Jesus, that it would work those tru- that those truths would work deep within the fabric of our own souls, causing us to walk in Your ways, causing us to look towards You, causing us to boldly proclaim the message of hope and atonement in Jesus Christ alone. And all of this that You may be glorified and Your people edified in Jesus' name. Amen.